I'm a representative of Her Majesty's British government. The Empire needs you. But the question is, do I need the Empire? Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dudes. Dude. His dudeness, duder, el duderino. Dude, dude. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Little Britannia. And now, here's the dudes. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to the Legion of Dudes podcast. This week, we're covering uh, Volume 1 of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And to do such an extraordinary task, I have assembled an extraordinary assemblage of dudes. Tonight, we have Mr. Russell Latham and Mr. Adam Umack with us. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, good evening. And fresh from his store of the West Indies, uh, bagging tigers in the Bengali Plains, is our special guest tonight, uh, Chris Beckett. How, how are you tonight, Chris? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Oh, we're very happy to have you on, Chris. I mean, you have uh, posted a lot of really great uh, forum posts. Uh, on our forums, that's at the comicforums.com, and uh, you've really had a lot of really cool and erudite things to say, and I thought it would be great to have you on, knowing what a big Alan Moore fan you are. Oh yeah, definitely, ever since Swamp Thing 21, I've been hooked, so. Yeah, that's when I got the bug too, I read the anatomy lesson, I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> uh, Chris, tell us about your website. Well, if you heard the extended edition, I talked to Adam about it, SPX, but a buddy of mine and I do a black and white comics and prose anthology kind of in the vein of uh, EC Comics, Twilight Zone, called it Warrior 27, after Warrior Magazine from Britain in the 80s, and you can check it out at warrior27.com. That's pretty cool. Warrior is where they originally printed uh, V for Vendetta and Marvel Man, isn't that right? Yeah. Also a couple of uh, early... Right, and uh, Warp Smith and some of those other uh, British comics that uh, you know, Alan Moore really rode the crest of the wave on. We have some exciting news here at Legion of Dudes. We, uh... I've really made the big time now. We are, are uh, our interns and our gold-plated Cadillacs are well on the way now, because uh, our, our own Mr. Johnny M got pimped big time by Top Cow. Russ, can you uh, fill in our listeners on that one? Yeah, we're lucky enough. John did a review a while back. Um, we got we're lucky enough from Top Cow to get a copy of Cyberforce Hunter Killer number two a while back, and John gave it a good read and did a review and posted it up on the site and put it up on his blog, and uh, Top Cow was gracious enough to put a quote from the, his review up on the actual cover of the book. So we've, we've actually made it to print. That's pretty awesome. And, you know, yeah. I've got to give all props to Johnny. I mean, I've contributed to the blog here and there, but he's really, you know, been at it every week, every all, all the time. And uh, I'm, I'm glad he got some recognition. I know if he were here on this episode, he probably wouldn't want us to talk about it. So kind of glad he's not, so we could, because uh, he deserves, you know, mad props for that. Yeah, if you, if you see the episode, actually the credit is the half hour wasted, but I think they were just going by the, the combined site at the time. So that is John's credit credit to the site so yay for, yay for him and yay for us it's like they said in the early 90s in that PSA we're all in the same gang you know <laughs> have fun yeah, exactly. Legion of Dudes we're all flying the same colors uh, Adam 
Uh, I know you have been doing a ton of work on our extended edition, uh, including yes. covering SPX and Pittsburgh Comic Con. Why don't you fill in listeners on uh, what they're missing out on if they're not checking out extended edition? Marvelous. Well, okay, just to give you guys the heads up, I know Ken and John and a bunch of us talked about it for the last couple of weeks, but we have an additional podcast. It's the supplement to the main half-hour wasted feed on Mondays and Legion of Dudes on Thursdays. Whenever we go to a comic convention, whenever we want to talk about our weekly pull lists from as far as our local comic store or discount comic book service, or when we talk about in-stock trades or whatever it is happens to be that we're pulling for the week, or if we have a cool interview that doesn't really fit our schedule, which I'm looking ahead till January, February right now, boys, and it's, it's pretty doggone packed. You can check us out uh, on the website at legionofdudes.com, or you could also type in Legion of Dudes again on iTunes, and you'll find a separate feed with a separate icon that'll be Half Hour Wasted and the Legion of Dudes Podcast Extended Edition. So, so far we've put up all the audio blogs for Lost, all the audio blogs for Blackest Night Numbers 1, 2, and 3, and all the time issues. Additionally, we put up all the blogs for Flash Rebirth, and um, we have many, many other things along the way. I just got uh, confirmation. Things were a little bit shaky uh, as of about two days ago, but um, I'm definitely going to be able to go to the Baltimore Comic Convention. So Alex Robinson, Jack Purcell, uh, a number of top-shelf people who uh, have committed on email to me tonight. I don't have not told you guys that. Um, a bunch of guys from DC, a bunch of guys from Marvel have said that they'd be more than willing to do interviews with us. So that is uh, phenomenal, and I'm glad that I'm going to be able to make it, if only for Saturday. So that's that's absolutely cool with me. So um, we have a bit Sweet of dude. news that I'm going to go over some. Yes, yes, some some quick housekeeping dude stuff real quick. So well, on the week of October 11th, we're going to be doing Old Man Logan, which is Russ's pick for a one-shot. And afterwards, we're going to do League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Volume 2, the week of October the 18th. And then on October the 25th, that week, we're going to join up with uh, the folks from Comic Geek Speak, from the guys from the Superman Fan Podcast, from Hell's Fires podcast, V for Vertigo. Also, I would only imagine that Ziggo and Comic Tube are going to join up as well. Um, we're going to be participating in the comic po- Comics Podcast Theme Event Week, which is going to be horror, which how appropriate is that for Halloween? That's also going to be a nice lead into The Walking Dead when we start in November. First Comic Geek Speak has done uh, events on Diamond Distributors, also on politics and comics. So we're just going to throw our uh, collective uh, six or seven hats in the ring here and uh, we're going to do a, a horror extravaganza, not unlike the villains uh, one we did or any of the other crazy Wolverine extravaganzas we did, etc. So uh, many th- uh, cool things to come. Uh, also, I want to get to some feedback briefly. This is from the Superman Batman Public Enemies episode we did last week. I want to give a shout-out to Biblio Mike. He's another dude that's posted a lot on our forums. Uh, for that episode, he writes, Hey, guys, thanks for the enjoyable review of the book. I agree with your initial assessment of the series as a whole. The Lope stuff is all strong, those first 25 issues. If anything, I like the Legion of Supervillains storyline better than uh, you, I guess he means me, than I did. And then, since about issue 50, when Thomas Wayne meets Jor-El, how could I possibly resist that solicitation? I've enjoyed the retro quasi-Silver Age goof. I am, however, planning to drop the book once the Blackest Night tie-ins are over because it will be revisiting old Superman stories that I haven't read, Emperor Joker, and so on. I think DC's making a mistake with the future direction of the book and uh, should keep it as fun, mostly, all-ages, friendly anthology than it has been. That's a really good uh, point that Mike makes. I mean, really, uh, as I kind of like went back through comic book database and well, my back issue been with uh, Superman Batman, I really realized that pretty much every every arc has been like Superman's lost control of his powers, 
or Batman's lost control of his powers. And it actually is a really, actually really ingrained in the whole Silver Age weirdness of, you know, beyond the pale of composite Superman and power loss slash what happens if he goes mad, you know what I mean? So I, I agree with him on there. Daryl's going to shout us out too. Uh, make sure you check out Daryl's uh, show, No Apologies, on the Comic Book Road Show uh, podcast. You guys got me through a long morning at work. Thank you. You should listen. You should see Daryl's posts on Facebook. They're desperate, man. The first 25 issues of Batman Superman, some of the most fun stories that I miss now because Lowe's writing lately has been uh, much to be desired with his Hulk and Wolverine work. I stopped buying the book uh, two arcs after he left with the rotating writer slash art team. Just lost the magic the book originally had. Absolutely agree to that one. Daryl's also semi-famous for the uh, voicemails he leaves on uh, 11 O'Clock Comics, another really good comics podcast that I listen to. Uh, I don't know what's better. His emails are Vince and Wood and everybody's reactions to them. It's it's all pretty comical. Thanks a lot for uh, getting us up to speed, Adam. And I just want to mention real quick that for the second volume of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, we're going to be joined by Ed Pisker as our special guest. And then for the uh, Black Dossier and 1910 episode, we're going to be joined by Megan Washington. And uh, Megan is going to have a very exciting announcement also for the extended edition uh, coming up in that episode. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. Beautiful. Kind of a secret plan going on right now. We're also probably going to have another announcement uh, next episode on the on the Wolverine, Old Man Logan episode. Um, make sure you please leave your comments at comments at legionofdudes.com. And also check our voicemail number at area code 516 468 Seven nine twelve. I'm ready to jump into Leave of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and I wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, our buddies. Everything comes back to 2000 AD podcast. Since uh, Alan Moore and Kevin uh, O'Neill are both alums of 2000 AD, I wanted to give these guys a shout out. Please check out Everything Comes Back to 2000 AD. Dot blogspot.com and you will find some amazing Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill goodness there. Okay, well, uh, gentlemen. Since I have such an uh, extraordinary gentleman here, let's get into League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume 1. Uh, uh, written by, of course, Alan Moore, the world-famous Northamptonshire Nightingale, famed for his verbal recitations and comical narratives, and drawn by Mr. Kevin O'Neill, the Tuppany Tintoretto, and his remarkable satirical likenesses. We start the book with a quote from Campion Bond from a book uh, called Memoirs of an English Intelligencer, which says, uh, The British Empire has always encountered difficulty in distinguishing between its heroes and its monsters. And uh, Campion Bond, as we find out, is this uh, poorly gentleman that we see as this book opens, is the grandfather of the character James Bond, which uh, people are probably a lot more familiar with. Uh, we see that he takes out a pack of cigarettes. He's lighting them with John Bull matches. Uh, John Bull is the uh, British version of uh, Uncle Sam. Uh, he's like a, you know, the embodiment of the British spirit. And he meets uh, Wilhelmina Murray and doesn't know really how to refer to her because they really haven't met in person before. And then the book opens with uh, Chapter 1, Empire Dreams. Beautiful splash page of this, you know, this great, like, uh, Victorian statuary of, of the lion and the, you know, winged vi- you know, victory c- holding a caduceus. And it's just this incredible, uh, like, Albion-esque version of, uh, of England, like this idealized version of England in the Victorian age. Um, not quite steampunk, but kind of... Along those lines, probably pre, I'd say pre-steampunk, wouldn't you guys? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah that's one of the Delicious. first things I noticed early in the book was is that it, it seemed to have either I guess depending on when steampunk really kind of came in vogue, but kind of had that heavy. The art had a very heavy steampunk kind of influence to it. 
it's really a hallmark of Kevin O'Neill's work, too. If you look at his earlier stuff, like Adam said, with 2008, or even uh, the, the work he did for Epic Comics, the Marvel imprint in the 80s, uh, Martial Law, he's always had this insane, it's not a very realistic style, but it's incredibly detailed and, and meticulous style. I'd put it in the same as, like, uh, Jeff Darrow or Frank Quitely. Maybe a little, you know, more uh, cartoonish than those, but just as meticulous and detailed. Um, what you said about the detail was... One of the things I noticed, this was my first time I had uh, read anything O'Neill had drawn, so it was really impressive. Yeah, I just think that, um, I think uh, Alan Moore really uh, picked the right artist for this, too, because his art really, and it's the kind of, uh, I wouldn't, I don't want to say believability, but it makes things very much its own you know, part, parts of its own universe, much like we saw uh, Gabriel Ba did in uh, the Umbrella Academy, or again, I, I mentioned Frank Quitely or John Cassidy. Everything seems to be part of a cohesive whole. I mean, there's nothing out of place. There's nothing anachronistic. There's no, you know, there's no art that stands out as, as not being part of this this world that he's created. Campion Bond meets Wilhelmina Murray. Now, Campion Bond is the grandfather of James Bond. Wilhelmina Murray is uh, Mina Murray from the uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula novel. Uh, she survived being bit by. Uh, contract at the end of the novel and uh, he refers to this about the divorce and being ravished by a foreigner and all that quite against your will of course but people do talk so don't they he offers her a job pretty much working for his employer mr m who she assumes is mycroft holmes who is the smarter brother of sherlock holmes this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the whole book we're going to see it's, it's the same planet premises in a book like planetary or um trying to think of another example where all the stories are true and not only are all the stories true but all the characters interact with one one another there are countless literary references all through here much as in planetary there are a lot of references all you know to all of pulp culture this goes more for victorian literature by placing the characters contemporary to when the their uh their books came out unlike you guys this is the this is my first read through with this for the show but it's one it's always kind of piqued my interest to want to read just because of all the the myth, I guess, the mashing uh, together of all these literary characters. You know, you you know, you have the the whole Jane, you know, the precursors, uh, ancestor to James Bond, and the you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Jekyll and Hyde, Sherlock Holmes, and on and on and on. And I, I just, it, you know, it's one of those concepts that you would have thought that somebody would have thought of, you know, by now that somebody would have taken these characters and kind of put them in the same world and and see how they interact. And I. I thought it was interesting because it's it's kind of most of these characters, the more famous ones, I guess, are almost like kind of past their prime at this point. Like he, he didn't, you know, more didn't take them kind of in their prime. You know, where you have Alan Quatermain as the young strapping guy, or you know, this is even sometime after you know the Dracula, Dracula incident with um, Nina Harker and Nina Murray. And the same thing with Campion Bond. I mean, you know, he's kind of this big overweight guy that's in charge of. MI5, and you'd assume that he kind of worked his way up the ranks and stuff like that, and even the brother of, you know, of, of Sherlock Holmes that we see later on, you know, all of these characters are kind of, at least in my opinion, kind of past their prime and are used in this story, so I thought that was just a really interesting premise and an interesting take. I think you came up with a good way to call it uh, a literary mashup. It's like the ultimate Victorian literary mashup, and if you go yeah. from uh, the, you know, the times the books came out, then you're absolutely right, this, um, you know, Mina Maria, all that stuff has already happened to her. You know, Quartermain is at past his prime uh, because the stories took place earlier in, in you know, their own internal history. So it's kind of cool and that... Also, I was just going to say, 
implication is that at this point, if all of these literary heroes and figureheads and whatnot, like Captain Nemo, Jekyll and Hyde, etc., if they're all brought together, then the inference I make is that their adventure together is going to be uh, even more so, you know, for lack of a better word, adventurous than their individual stories. And I certainly think that the first volume, you know, does this. I mean, I... As, as we get through the month of October here, I, I will certainly chime in on Bossy since I finished that like last night and stuff. But um, I think that out of all three of the volumes, and I'm not going to include Century 19 uh, in, in this one too because that's just started, but I think uh, the first one is the most accessible because Moore uh, does enough as a writer as far as saying, okay, well, this is uh, Campion Bond, and then you've got the James Bond stuff. You don't have to go fishing. You don't have to go, you know, through the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, to figure out what's who's what. And I think this is definitely the most accessible. I think it's also the most successful as far as the marriage of art to words, and I also think it's the most successful from words to art as well. As a whole, and Jim, I know you're an English major. I mean, I, I teach the subject. I know, you know, I was in school too. I got, I got this when it was coming out in 1999. I mean, I was, you know, finishing up high school, getting ready to go to school and whatnot. And I will just say this: that you think geeks are bad? Try literary geeks. I mean, I mean, I was spouting off, you know, quotes from the Fairy Queen and Kurt Vonnegut, and oh, geez, what else? I mean, I, I read Beowulf in Old English, at, at least a couple chapters of it at some point. So tread softly on on this, you know, this next month with us here, because uh, this is a whole this is a whole new world. And if you talk about continuity, I mean, Alan Moore at this point is the king of continuity, and his editors, you know, at America's Best Comics and likewise at Top Shelf, have pretty much captured it down because it gets to the point when we hit Black Dossier that every possible realm in literature from Salem's from Salem's Lot to the Blazing World, Lilliput, and everything is included in the actual universe of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I think is pretty phenomenal. But at the same time, such a huge, huge, huge jump uh, for anyone to make that it's it becomes more Watchmen than Watchmen in that it drops so many intertextual kind of like what, what did we call them? Like nods, you know what I mean? Like if you go back to Watchmen a year ago when you know the hamburger wrapper or the crystal knocked poster was on the wall. I mean, League of Extraordinary, as you hit the tail end of Volume Two and into Black Dossier, becomes the world's largest literary shout out to anyone who was British, English, South American, African, and even uh, you know authors from you know the Far East and stuff too. This is, I think this volume is more than tolerable. I will slowly decline my opinions thereof, but I still read it because just because something's challenging doesn't mean it requires less attention. It means it requires more attention, and that's something that I'm absolutely willing to do, and I enjoy doing, but I can't say that, that for all three of the volumes. Yeah, the first two are definitely more narrative than the, the Black Dossier. The Black Dossier is kind of more meta. It's kind of the book about the book itself. You know, the Black Dossier in the book is, uh, I mean, we'll talk about it more when we get there, but it's the book of all the information of all the leagues of extraordinary gentlemen over whatever recorded history they had. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. We're still in the first first issue, first yep. volume. And uh, after, as uh, Campion Bond and, and Mina Murray's conversation comes to an end, he says, your chariot approaches, we see a great... Uh, amount of bubbles come up from the water, and then we are transported to an opium den. And um, Mina Murray, very out of place as a woman alone in an opium den. And she finds Alan Quartermain. Now, Alan Quartermain is from uh, the Alan Quartermain stories um, by H. Ryder Haggard, including uh, She, 
which has been adapted into film a few times. Uh, King Solomon's Minds, which has also made a film with uh, Richard Chamberlain, I believe. And uh, but a whole series of uh, of uh, adventure stories. But at this point, he is opium addicted, wasted away. He's seen his <laughs> seen better days. And she says, "Your country has need of you." And he says, "Go away." And then uh, as she starts to get attacked by the bouncers at the opium den, he's drawn to action. He pulls his pistol, and then a fight ensues. They, stab, they fight their way out. Mina Murray buries the sword deep into a guy's back to save Quartermain's life, and they escape to the docks. Their savior uh, comes to um, refer to them coming up as a Mohammedan, a Mohammedan rabble, a bunch of uh, Arabs coming out of the, the opium and chasing them onto the docks. And I love this line here as Quartermain, as she's facing the crowd attacking them, Quartermain's looking out on the ocean. God's teeth, Miss Murray. Forgive me, but is it the opium? Or can you see that as well? And the next page is a full-page spread of the Nautilus, uh, Captain Nemo's Nautilus, to be precise, from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It is submerged up from the water. Now we know what has caused the bubbles from the earlier sequence. A hatch opens, a tall, dark-skinned man with a, a large beard and a turban with the Nautilus crest on, on his turban invites them aboard. Pretty much takes care of the, the group chasing them with a, a well-placed harpoon. And uh, they submerge, and they lock uh, uh, Quartermain away as he passes out in opium uh, opium blur. I, I do like the way this action is. There, There's very little dialogue on the, the interim of this entire scene, really, if you think about it. And, uh, yeah, we, more is wise when he lets the artists do what they can to propel the story. Yeah, I think with an action sequence like that, it was better off without dialogue. You're absolutely right. And uh, it's just a, a great sequence. And we see in this version of, uh, of events that Captain Nemo is what they refer to as a science pirate. Yes, um, the giant novelist is at his disposal. They lock uh, Quartermain away so he can uh, get over his opium sickness. And they realize that uh, we pan out to where Mina Murray and Nemo are having tea in the cabin outside where Quartermain is drying, uh, drying out. And uh, Nemo asks some questions about her. And he says, uh, she says that Quartermain and Nemo are sides of the, fa- uh, the same coin. Quartermain was uh, Empire's favorite son. You were its nightmare. Her, her term, which if makes, I mean, it does make sense because if you if you look at the literary underpinnings, Quartermain is the essential British adventurer, you know, going off into the dark continent, cutting a swath and and taming you know the the jungle and the wilderness and the unknown. Whereas Nemo was the unknown. He came from, you know, he came with this you know to uh, to attack Torian England to uh, you know to subdermine uh, to to undermine it rather than to uh, promote it. So they dry out Quartermain. And uh, he gets around. We get another one of these great uh, giant panels of uh, a city. They, they've landed in Paris. But Kevin O'Neill's Paris is a beautiful version full of skyscrapers and airships and uh, walkway. It's just, again, the intense detail. And we see multiple towers that look like the Eiffel Tower off in the distance. I was going to say, it's almost kind of anachronistic. You know, you see things that, you know, are almost futuristic but not quite. You know, you see things, air balloons floating around as prominently in 1898, you know, I'm sure it didn't exist, and you have all these windmills and the way the structures are built and stuff like that. See a lot of that going on. It's almost kind of, you know, not to go back too much to Watchmen, but we always seem to. You know, the same kind of concept in Watchmen where, you know, the world as we know it based on this period of time seems to be a little bit, you know, pushed forward, you know, technologically than the world that we know to be real. So I, I just thought that was interesting that, you know, they, we've kind of kept that look. And I, I guess it's part of that steampunk influence we talked about earlier, 
And I'd be curious to see how much of that is is Moore's um, direction or O'Neill styling. And you know, given you know what we know about Watchmen, I would say probably has a lot more to do with Moore than than O'Neill. Right. When we did that interview with Gibbons, they said the first thing that they did before they even wrote the first word of Watchmen was to create the world that Watchmen existed in. And I could totally see the, uh, O'Neill and Moore doing the same thing here. You know, it makes sense that that a world populated with all these fictional characters and these you know um, amazing things would be amazing you know even in the mo- most mundane ways you know like just li- like you said you know everything pushed forward a little bit like victorian futuristic if you will so they land in paris and they meet uh, august dupin who is obviously patterned after august lupin from uh, murder in the room morgue and uh, some of the other poe detective tales poe yeah uh like the uh, purloin letter that was a pretty awesome one he, right. was, uh, he was pretty recognizable and the cool thing about uh, murders in the room morgue was that you know, of course, what was happening? Well, you know, this crazy gorilla was running around and uh, snatching people from their houses, you know, by the chimney and the rooftops and stuff. And you really would have thought it was the same thing, especially in the actually the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, too. When Dr. Jekyll uh, slash Mr. Hyde was running around the rooftops, it was a very, very cool scene that actually still included Dupin. Dupin. Right. Yeah. It would be That's in that. One more strengths I've seen. Because he makes these connections from all his research that makes sense once you see it in his context. Absolutely, that's a good point. It, it would make sense that, that Dupin would think that it was the return of the, the murder of the Rue Morgue, but evidently the murders started happening again in a very uh, similar way to the gorilla that caused the Rue Morgue murders before. So they decide to put Amina Murray out as bait to try to find this new murderer who's murdering in much the same way. And then... Uh, Quartermain takes his eyes off her for a second, and she's gone. He asks uh, a street whore where she has gone. They try to find her, and uh, finally he finds her up uh, up in an apartment. He thought it, she had found him. She thought she could handle him, but evidently she could not. She says something had happened. He opens the door. We are introduced to Mr. Hyde, who in this version is very much like the Hulk, I find, in a lot of ways. Um, from Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Henry Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Edward Hyde, of course, and uh, he's holding a bloody crowbar in his hand, and th- thus ends uh, issue one of uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, with all of our assembled cast so far in total danger of being destroyed by this hulking giant man with a bloody crowbar in his face. I, I really like this version of Hyde. It just uh, It's very true to the, the spirit of the story, and it's very true to itself as the story goes on. He never deviates from character. He is pretty much evil incarnate you know he's again he reminds me very much of the the early hulk like the very feral incredible hulk in some ways dupin and uh, murray are, are shocked they're just looking at this guy dupin pulls out a service revolver shoots him square in the face and all it does is make him mad quarterman jumps on his back shoves a bottle in his throat and so and that is the only thing that takes him out it turns out that he has just filled his uh filled Hyde with a whole bottle of laudanum, which is an opium derivative, and that was the only thing that would be it was able to put him out, not a you know pistol shot to the face. But uh, Hyde falls four stories, and still alive, <laughs> and uh, we watch him fall on another great um, splash page, beginning of chapter two, called Ghosts and Miracles. Yeah. I remember you telling us the story that you were at a concert and you fell like thirty feet. I'm, I'm, you know, compare that fall to Hyde's right now, Jim. Did you take a bigger hit or did Mr. Hyde? Oh, I did for sure. And I dislocated my hip and broke my leg and all kinds of stuff. So. Oh, that is why this, we love you. Chris, go ahead. 
Well, I love how more sets up the laudanum scene. It just progresses so naturally from uh, Quartermain's character. I mean, what, six, eight pages before the end of the last issue, he's staring in the pharmacy for it, and then that's what pulls him away while they're supposed to be watching Mina Murray. I mean, it's so natural. It's not forced like some other writers might do. Right, and it makes sense that he would have the lot in him since he's fighting the opium addiction. Exactly. I mean, it's not like, you know, oh, wow, and just magically appeared, you know. They collect their uh, fallen uh, prize, I guess you could call him, <laughs> uh, onto a cart, and the Nautilus pops out of the water. And Dupont already knows about the Nautilus, knows about Captain Nemo, and knows about Mina Murray, it seems. It seems he, you know, he's pretty much apprised on the whole situation. Uh, they take Hyde away. Night goes on, he turns back into Henry Jekyll. And he's missing an ear <laughs> from his encounter before with the revolver. And uh, Wilhelmina Murray is recording all this onto a letter to Campion Bond that uh, she's collected more of his menagerie, as uh, he referred to it earlier in the book. I thought it was interesting how they drew Hyde. Turns into Hyde, you know, typically he's just is either or portrayed as just, you know, kind of a disfigured, maybe bulkier version of uh, Dr. Jekyll. And then we even saw his portrayal in the movie where it was a pretty dramatic transformation. And this is somewhat faithful to the, or the, the movie is somewhat faithful to this, but especially like his face, you can see where the skin's pulling away and you can see like the tendons and the muscles and look behind it. Very interesting the way that, you know, that character was designed to show that, you know, the skin is really stretching out pretty much past the limit. Yeah, and they're, they're total opposites too in, in, not only in physical stature, but, I mean, when we see Jekyll, he's always, you know, yellow, almost jaundiced and pale and white. Yeah. And every time we see Hyde, he, he almost looks like a gorilla. He's brown and, and, and yeah. you know, his, his jaw is protruded. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's it's really cool portrayal, I thought. And, again, very true to the original book. The crew lands back in uh, in Blighty, old dear old Blighty, as uh, Camping Bond Prefer, uh, refers to it, and they're debriefed about what's going on with a uh, guy named Robur, Master of the Air. And that's a shout-out to uh, Jules Verne's Master of the World, which was also made into a movie uh, starring Vincent Price by Disney in the 70s. There are vague vague threats, he says, from within his hidden stronghold. And then he uh, mentions, you may have read the Reverend Septimus Harding's attack but upon the so-called miracles at Miss Coot's school in Edmonton. And they send them off to Miss Coot's school they have no idea what they're being set up to uh, to do or capture. Even Nemo says as much as they as they take off again. They have no idea where the school fits in or any of these things. But Nemo, fear, um, seeing a pattern here, that Campion Bond is collecting monsters, and he really is. I mean, so far he has Mina Murray, he has you know Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, he has Captain Nemo, you know the science pirate as he's referred to in the book, and uh, Alan Quatermain. All anomalies, all. Like, uh, you know, different, different faces of the British Empire in different ways, you know. I mean, Nemo yeah. in some ways represents... The Secret Service, you know. Right. Well, I mean, Nemo in some ways represents the, the revenge of uh, subjugation of India. I mean, and Quartermain represents, like I said, the swashbuckling Brit. I mean, uh, Jekyll and Hyde kind of represents the repression of British society. And uh, Wilhelmina Murray really kind of represents the suffragette movement because that was starting right about then. What do you make of the Invisible Man? Then, what do you what do you make of his position in all this? Well, the interesting thing fun. about him is like he, if he does, it, it's almost like he exists, but he doesn't exist. He has he's the most morally bankrupt of all of them, including Hyde. If you think about it, well, yeah, I mean, Especially he kills. What I, I mean, Hyde gets mad and has a reason to kill someone. You know, uh, Holly Griffin, the Invisible Man, kills randomly. 
you know, he just kills, you know, psychotically. I, I didn't mean to kill well, yeah, off. Especially at the end of volume point. two as well, you know, that's a big thing with Griffin. Yeah, right. End two, right. You know, and which we'll get to later. Russ, what were you going to say? To me, he almost give, gives me like a Jack the Ripper kind of vibe. And knowing what we see from, you know, from how, you know, Jack the Ripper was, you know, kind of, I guess one of the quotes or one of the things they say is a, kind of the coming of the 20th century. Um, right. So that's how I kind of view the Invisible Man. You know, again, he's free with his inhibitions. I mean, given what we see coming up, that, you know, the way he carries on with himself, he's just very free and open. And, you know, I guess a lot of what we'll see more of either, you know, maybe somewhat of a declining moral or, right, you know, like just, the, again, to throw away the inhibitions is, you know, like, kind of a representative of, you know, 20th century, you know, 20th century. Kind of like the breakdown of the Victorian moral code in one person. Right. Right, but well, yeah, everything. Every, you know, like, like you're, I'm saying, I don't mean to cut you off real quick, Adam. But um, like you were saying before, Adam, nothing is is you know just. I mean, everything stands for something else, much like Watchmen in this. You know, everything says something else. There's a statement about something else, and I think it's a really good point to make about it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just going to say that it just seems to me that you know Griffin's placement in all this is well a griffin you know it's kind of like a mixture of of, of, a mixture of monsters you know if if you look back to your mythology and i know that's more the author's work than it is Moore's work you know as far as 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 the naming of the invisible man but at the same time it's almost like giving way to that century when you hit 1900 in some ways because in some respects you know uh you you lose your uh, identity in a lot of ways with population boom and Malthusian theory and all that other stuff that kind of gives way to, well, kind of like a larger picture. And just as much as new things happen as far as, you know, sociology and in some cases, you know, psychology and, and how we view the world, it shapes our worldview, you know, those morals also change. And if anyone is, is cutthroat, no pun intended, I mean, it is Griffin. And that kind of like anonymity, I think, represents more of, you know, the, the coming uh, 20th century than anything. Right, like like we're seeing the breakdown of morals as, uh, as we go into the 20th century. I mean, it's kind of the, the Nietzsche thing, too. All right, uh, enough of that tangent. <laughs> Again, you know, there's enough depth in here. We could go on and on, on, on all night about it, but I, I just, um, I mean, that's the beauty of Alan Moore, you know, and that's the beauty of this and, and Watchmen and some of the other things he's done. Uh, Murray and uh, Nemo and Quartermain go to the girls' school. Nemo uh, disguised as a servant to uh, Murray and Quartermain as a, as a couple supposedly looking for a school for their wayward daughter. And this references a whole genre of fiction in um, in England, the uh, the schoolgirl story, the British schoolgirl story. And as they walk by, we see uh, Olive Chancellor getting spanked by the other schoolgirls. You know, we'll soon thrash your independent American ways out of you. And uh, there was a whole again, there's a whole um, series of books that are set in uh, girl schools, including Pollyanna and uh, Mall Flanders and other things. Uh, so they find out that there's been a, an angel, or what they call a um, Holy Spirit, that has impregnated some of the girls in the school. They meet one of the girls named Becky, um, who has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And these miracles uh, have all happened in the senior girls' dormitory. <laughs> it seems the Holy Spirit seems to favor that dorm. And they uh, put them into, uh, yeah, gee, hmm. <laughs> so they put them into their uh, the room. Mina Murray makes uh, Quartermain sleep in the court, in the service quarters with Nemo, and they discuss Murray, Mina Murray, and women in general, and why, and they wonder why they're doing there. And then they are interrupted by screams. One of the other girls has been uh, 
taken by the Holy Spirit, and we see her floating in the air, screaming, Oh God, oh God. And all the other girls, paralyzed in fright, some have fainted. <laughs> some are just staring, <laughs> some are just staring, uh, you know, just like shocked, not knowing what to, what to do. So, uh, Mina Murray and Quartermain go to figure out what is going on. They get in there, and he feels something that feels like naked skin, but then he gets hit by a lamp. Then uh, Nemo comes in, he's got his arm around his throat, and you can feel it writhing, but he can't see, and he gets punched in the face by whatever this is. Meanwhile, during the melee, Mina Murray has gone to get a bucket of white paint. She throws it at whatever it is, and it talks. Blast it, damn you to hell. There, it can talk, and then Quartermain says, somebody do something, and Murray hits him with the bucket, and he's down. She says, here's your Holy Spirit, not quite... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a prospective parent. I'm an agent of the crown here to trap your spectral visitor, as it's called. And they're not sure what's going on, but they load it onto the truck and get her out of there. And then uh, the girl that was being attended, mishandled by the mishandled by a demon, as she refers to it. I'm determined to remain, remain optimistic no matter what. Dear Pollyanna, such a plucky child. And again, this is where we get the phrase, you know, being a Pollyanna from the optimistic uh, literary character. They take... The Invisible Man away to their uh, new headquarters in the British Museum in, in London. The whole thing is just hilarious. You know, the more I read this and looked around at all the imagery and and everything else, it just made me crack up. I mean, the building is literally in the shape of a hand smacking a bear behind. It, it, it's just crazy. And then just you know, it's supposed to be this you know school you know for wayward you know girls basically, and yet there's sexual imagery everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. I mean, right, all the know. statuary, all the paintings, yeah. everything they see is, is some the sort furniture. of sexual imagery. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious, you know, that it's so, you know, it's such an oxymoron, you know, that, that they're shocked and appalled that, you know, these things, well, I guess they're, they're kind of proud of, of these things going on. And then the, the, I guess the headmistress of the school or whatever comes in, you know, as all the commotion is going on and the way she's dressed and she says she's entertaining some people and it's just like, I don't know what kind of entertainment she was doing, but uh might be interesting to then uh, fly on the wall, let's say. And this, uh, this really speaks to the, the sexual repression of the Victorian era as well. I mean, you know, this is supposed to be an up-and-up girl school. Yet, like you said, Russ, all the statuary, all the all the pictures are of uh, sexual things. And, I mean, there's just uh, you know, this entire repressed sexuality that is very much the hallmark of Victorian England. The, um, we also get a date here, July 5th, uh, 1898. So we're coming up on 1900. That becomes very important later in the story. They're the complete league uh, assembled now, and uh, they've been given the secret annex uh in the British Museum as their uh, their headquarters. They have Invisible Man in custody. His name is Holly Griffin, they said. Also, he, he uh, made himself invisible as a guinea pig. They explain what is the deal with uh, Jekyll and uh, why you know, him and Hyde are the same person and how uh, Jekyll faked suicide and fled to Paris and thus was found by Dupin. And then we find out the real uh, mission that everybody is getting assembled for. Professor Caver has lost his Caverite. Professor Caver is from... Uh, from Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne, a movie of the same name, book of the same name. And he, his uh, invention is Caverite, which is an element that floats. It is anti. It is literally anti-gravity. It, that's how they were able to go to the moon and from Earth to the moon. This storyline, his Caverite's been stolen, and they find out about the lunar, the planned lunar expedition for 1900 to mark the dawn of the 20th century. And they won't be able to uh, make any more Caverite, but they won't be able to by the end of the century. So they want to get... What troubles them more is that someone unknown to them 
has the Calvarite and might be able to create flying machines of some sort. They really are in a pickle about not having the Calvarite, not only for their own plans, but also they're not sure who has it, basically. They have other suspects. We see the uh, the original uh, drawing of the original incarnation, or one of the earlier incarnations of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. We have a Lemuel Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels, the Reverend Dr. Sin from the books of the, that period, uh, Fanny Hill, and uh, Natty Bumpo, uh, all of which are literary characters. Natty Bumpo is from uh, Last of the Mohicans. Thank you, Chris. I, I knew somebody catch that for me. These are the original... Uh, there, nothing is said about this, so this is just something that Mina Murray sees on the wall in the secret annex. So obviously, the, this is not the first League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that has been assembled. We find out later in the Black Dossier that actually it's not. It's the, uh, they find out that a guy that's only known, a person who's only known as the Doctor, he's regarded as Satan himself by such few who have survived encountering him. He has the Cavorite, and their group's job is to track him to his lair, down east in Limehouse. And again, we get another one of these great... Uh, issue-ending splash pages from uh, Kevin O'Neill. And uh, we see the shadow in the sky of the evil Oriental, <laughs> which is another literary uh, concoction from that period. You know, the, the evil Asian uh, looking to take down you know, the um, immoral Westerners. Korean. It's interesting, though, because like that seems to be kind of like a pastiche, really, of all this, <laughs> of the whole book, too, because, I mean, if anything... It's kind of like fraught with stereotypes, like the girls' school, or a reversal of those, you know, in, in fact, too. And that's something that, you know, this kind of like angry Chinaman are like, strange, mystic wizard, you know, that, that kind of like terrible stereotype. <laughs> that, that even happened up through World War II, you know? I mean, if you look at even Dr. Seuss's early political cartoons, I mean, it was completely, completely fraught with stereotypes and stuff, too. So it's interesting that it's a, it's kind of like... Uh, a retread of uh, phobias and isms, you know, that happened way back when. But also, it's it's kind of a cool villain initially. Just this strange, you know, doctor who may or may not have a, a set or unset relationship with the former league. Uh, that, as far you know, is Campion has said himself. Yeah, I think this uh, this particular one is supposed to be a nod to Fu Manchu uh, from the Saxon Romer novels. But I, again, you're right. That's pretty much a stereotype that was used all the way you know, up to the like 40s and 50s. So I've had fun writing this with using all these characters and stereotypes. I mean, I look back at their uh, the annex with the huge skulls and the caskets, like any other, like your Justice League right. headquarters or your Bat like, Cave with the giant penny. Only it's uh, the Nautilus and it's a uh, steampunk version. Yeah. I really like the way this next page is laid out with the six panels of each member uh, of the League and then going back to Mina Murray as they all discuss, you know, why they're there and uh, what they're what they're going in for, you know, why they each, uh, you know, are part of this group. And then uh, she said, are we agreed to proceed with the assignment as, as proposed? And they do. And they find a way to, for Griffin to get around, but he's covered with grease paint and looks really even more scary than he would if he were invisible. I love the way that, that they've done this page. I mean, we get this three-by-three three grid, and he, you know, the, the, you know the, the narrative keeps flowing through, and, and we see him slowly put on more and more of the grease paint and the wig, and, I don't know, just very cinematic. I mean, you could, you know, easily see this, you know, taking place, you know, on, on the screen. So I thought, I thought it was just a pretty cool page to see it all develop. Yeah, I really... Um 
And then the next page, too, is uh, is another grid layout with the four uh, horizontal pages. And you get to see a lot of things in the background here, including uh, a reference that we're going to see to the volume two, where we uh, have a newspaper held up, eruptions on Mars may be volcanoes. This ties in later. But they go to the squalor part of Whitehall, uh, to a place called Kuang Li, Prevera, a fine tea. And they're looking, they ask uh, a man, they ask the man there for, uh, called the doctor, and the uh Kuang Li tells him, the water's lap beneath the heavenly bridge. The dragon sleeps below the water. My advice to you, do not awaken it. And they think it's a parable, but it's all he has to give them other than tea. And then they actually get to the bridge, and they realize the dragon was below the water. The water was below the bridge. Hey, we're on a bridge. <laughs> maybe maybe he yeah. meant... Yeah. Griffin, when he's just passing it off, like some... What's he say? The dragon hovers over the pagoda crack. <laughs> yeah, but it takes me to Murray to uh, to put it together. The other uh, pair of uh, Jekyll and Quartermain are also, uh, they say they're seeking opium. They're looking around. They're, they're hitting the waterfront as well, trying to find something. And they go to talk to a man named Ho Ling. And they're, the, the I'm sorry, on the outer, outside, they say the Ho Ling must not be disturbed. Uh, by the way, hope he was not too good a friend of yours. They go into the back and they see that um, he's literally being branded with Chinese calligraphy, probably as a punishment for a non-payment or for incurring the wrath of whoever the doctor is. So uh, they realize that they don't want to suffer the same fate. They try to make their way out, but um, Jekyll is, comes pretty close to hiding out, as it were. <laughs> yeah. And uh, gets chased out of the opium den. One of the crazy things that I've noticed on the art from O'Neill is the whole crazy eyes thing. He's got the crazy eyes down pat. You know, whenever something really bizarre is happening, and I love it, it's always, like, off-panel. You know, you'll see one of them just go, you know, give, give that stare with the big, wide-open, you know, eyes, and then you'll, in the next panel or the next page, you'll kind of see what's going on. So I just, I, that, that was something I just kind of noticed throughout. And the way he's drawn what ostensibly is Fu Manchu is pretty bizarre. I mean, just the whole, almost was mummified, you know, very, a lot of hard cross lines and, you know, the, the whole, almost like cat's eyes. I, I just, and, you know, the panels at the top of that page where we kind of see him in profile and then get a close-up of his eye. And then we get that, that center shot of Quartermain. And like I said, his eyes are just, you know, big, round, like doesn't know what he's even looking at. And I thought it was interesting, too, that we get the Chinese being spoken, and we don't get the translation. So I thought that was kind of cool, because, you know, you know, just all this you know, chatter going on in the foreground and the background, and it's obviously to keep your focus on the visual and not the audio. You know, it's not really important what they're saying. It's more what's, you know, really going on in this place. So I thought that was pretty cool. Hey, Russ, uh, some really, really good Kevin O'Neill artwork is probably in, well... I would, I would say probably after the whole 2000 AD stuff and after League of Extraordinary, uh, Martial Law by Kevin O'Neill and Pat Mills. Uh, this is a book that's put out in a collected omnibus style by Top Shelf. I, I got to flip through it uh, at SPX last weekend, and um, it's it's a pretty amazing as far as uh, Kevin's artwork. It's, it's I, I think, probably better than Century that he's doing now, and I really look at Century as probably some of his top-notch work. But check out Martial Law also by Kevin O'Neill. It's totally different from this, too. Totally. It's more like the boys. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
I'd have to if I had to compare it to something, I'd say it's more like the boys. Pretty much Looks martial like law is the guy who comes in to take care of superheroes when they go rogue. Uh, much like the boys say, are in the, in that book. I would say so. like uh, Judge Dredd plus uh, Black Summer. I've read Black Summer, but um, it, it, again, when I read The Boys, I was like, wow, this is a lot like martial law, only without superheroes, you know, doing the, the beating down, as it were. But uh, yeah, it's totally different from this, but also great, for sure. I didn't know the top shelf had collected it, though. That's, that's pretty cool. Quartermain tells uh, Jekyll what he's seen, that a man was being uh, written on in caustic paint, and that, that wasn't what bothered him. What bothered him was the man who was doing the tattooing, that it looked... To him, very much like Satan. Um, the League uh, gets to get back together in the uh, Nautilus, and they discuss the fact that there's an uncompleted tunnel underneath the river. And if you were going to build something, you know, a lethal airship that would take down London, that you'd have to find somewhere a large enclosed space to do it, and not be, uh, you know, to not be uh, detected. So they realize that they're going to have to go down to try to find this tunnel because that's where this airship with the cavalry is. They, uh, Mina and Quartermain go off. Um, they talk. Uh, Mina talks a little bit about uh, how she has problems with Griffin and the fact he has he's totally incapable of suffering remorse. He's kind of like uh, our so-called alienists could learn much about criminal insanity by talking with him. Which is a shout out to Caleb Carr's book, The Alienist, which is uh, a book about the, one of the very first uh, psychological profilers. It's based on a, a true story, but it's a fictional uh, tale about a guy who breaks a uh, um, serial killing or stops a serial killer at turn of the century New York uh, called The Alienist. Anyway, they find a way into a uh, flop house and then they, uh, they sneak their way from the flop house down into the tunnel where they find a giant airship with a giant gun on front and a dragon's face painted on it. And I really love the little uh, text box at the bottom. Not only is and the text box itself is framed with a Chinese dragon. Tremble, dearest reader, at the horde spectacle of Johnny Chinaman, armed with the mighty weapons of our new electric age, and bent on turning them against our island home. It's just so, you know, Victorian cheesy, you know. It's, it's almost like the Victorian version of the end of the old uh, Batman show, you know. Yeah, and I love all the issues kind of had that little blurb at the end, you know, it's kind of like, dear reader... Um, you know, state, you know, again, like you were saying, same bat time, same, same bat channel kind of thing, but I just, I, I don't know, they, I like the inclusion of that. But I, th- I thought it was interesting, too, how, like, for me, the Murray and the whole Alan Quartermain thing, it's like the, it's almost like it's purposefully meant to be telegraphed in. I mean, it's the typical, oh, they hate each other, you know, they know they hate each other, but it's not really, they're, they're really mad, you know, see, with each other and they're going to play it off and you know all that kind of stuff it just it, it's i don't know it just it's kind of funny almost you know, almost like it's poking fun of itself because it's so obvious that that's you know what's going on in the path it, it's on so i just i thought that was interesting how they keep trying to it's almost like in those old you know, movies from the 40s or the you know 30s and the 40s when you know men and women would act like that you know uh everything was real subtle and and you know I really like the action in, in this issue, and especially in number four and five that we're, uh, you know, going to be coming up on soon. I think that, I mean, Black Dossie was certainly story-driven, if, if anything, more than, like, action-oriented. You know, it wasn't exactly a, uh, you know, James Bond flick, uh, Black Dossier. But I, I just really felt that there was, like, uh, that kind of high adventure, which I imagined through having, you know, no literary background on it myself, Alan Quarterman was supposed to kind of, like, have or exude 
or, you know, get into those kind of situations. So I think, you know, uh, this one, the escape, the airship sequence, uh, you know, are all pretty remarkable. And I don't, I don't think that, uh, subsequently, even though, you know, the Martians and stuff are pretty cool in volume two, that the other storylines live up to it. And I have no idea where Century is going right now. So take that for what it's worth. Well, that's the thing. Moore's written a book that's an action adventure story, but you can read it on so many levels with these Victorian characters in the shadows. It can give you more if you're looking for more. No pun intended there, but it worked. <laughs> more, more than more. Um, yeah, I agree. Like the, it makes sense that the characters that were mostly in action adventure uh, stories um, from that period are in an action adventure story in this story. And then the Black Dossier, while it does have a narrative through it, that's really kind of just ancillary to what else is going on. It's more like a documentation of like past leagues of extraordinary gentlemen and what Mina and uh, Quartermain were doing like in the 40s and 50s, and it fills in a lot of holes in the history and continuity. Hey, let me just ask you guys this. Uh, I don't know if this is on your high school reading lists or in college or what, but have you guys ever read, or how many have you read, of the novels that more based uh, League of Extraordinary off of? Personally, I've read Dracula, I've read uh, Jekyll and Hyde, and I've also read Alice in Wonderland, which is kind of, you know, mentioned in some of the museum scenes and whatnot. And also Island of Dr. Moreau. But uh, beyond that, uh, and I'm sure, you know, we'll take a couple trips down, you know, your summer reading list Hall of Fame here, you know, through the next couple of weeks and stuff. But I can't really speak to other characters. So my familiarity with Mina and, you know, and Dr. Moreau, especially in Volume 2, kind of like propel me further. But I, I think that this is a really risky book. I mean, I think it's a really, really risky book. I think it's a good one. Victorian literature doesn't just scream sales numbers. And, you know, you have the guys that are, you know, like, like Chris or Jim, you know, yourself. And, well, myself, because this was the first, well, Alan Moore ongoing that I ever bought while it was, you know, coming out. You know, we, we, bought, the, we bought it anyway. You know, and I'm just wondering what your experience has been literature-wise with some of these characters, aside from Lee of Extraordinary. Mine's been limited. I mean, I read Dr. Jekyll and I read Dracula, but pretty much that's it. I can't say that. You know, I didn't read 20,000 Weeks Under the Sea or, you know, any of the source for The Invisible Man. I haven't. So my exposure has been pretty limited. I didn't read any of the Sherlock Holmes books. I, I have read some of those, a good many of the Bond books um, from Fleming, but that's a little, that's pretty ancillary given that the character in here is so far removed from, you know, modern day James Bond. But, but that's pretty yeah. much the extent of it. I could speak for like a couple uh, here and there things for the uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes stuff, like uh, you know the Musgrave ritual, and of course we mentioned you know the Edgar Allan Poe stuff with the Furlong letter and whatnot too. You know later as we get on, you know I, I could speak for you know a couple of the Shakespearean plays and stuff that, that are mentioned too. Chris and Jim. Yeah, it's been so long. Um, I've read Invisible Man in Twenty Thousand Leagues. But that was probably 20 years ago. I've read some of the shows and Edgar Allan Poe stuff more recently, but other than that, pretty much I came into this with little background or little remembrance of background for any of these characters. Well, um, my mom was an English teacher, and she started me reading pretty early. I read The Hobbit when I was like four or five, I think. And uh, I've read a lot of these things. But I think the interesting thing about The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is, even if you don't know the background of all the characters, you can relate to them within the background of the, you know, the context of the story itself. You know what I mean? You don't have to have an English degree and know every single reference and every single 
You know, it's like Watchmen. You can read it as a murder mystery, you know, a straight-up story. Or if you have the comic book reference, you know, references in your mind, then you'll say, oh, well, that's obviously a, 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 you know, a nod to this. That's obviously a nod to that, you know. I mean, but the story works on its own. I think this does, too, and I think that's part of the beauty of it, you know. You don't need to, to run to Wikipedia and know every single thing about every, you know, background about every single character. You can easily enjoy the story just for the story that it is, even with the limited knowledge. Don't, do you guys agree I'll, with that? I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that for this volume. Black Dossier is a little more obtuse, but I would say for the first two, you could you could easily you know enjoy it without um, you know having to you know run to Wikipedia to fill in all the holes. Okay, so uh, as we return to our story in chapter four, we see Nemo with his crewmen asking them what they think of this you know ragtag bag bag these uh, uh, band that he's brought on board the Nautilus, and uh, he says that. Bond thinks we're his pawns. He thinks no one observes his game, but I am no one. And to play with Nemo is to play with games of destruction, which basically is saying that, you know, he's only going to take so much from Campion Bond before he's out of here. He does not have any love for the British Empire whatsoever. Quarter meter. literal, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Because Nemo means no one. Right. Good catch, Chris. They, uh, we go back to Mena and, uh, and Quartermain. They're scared shitless, but they're still, you know, coming down uh, the stairs into where the, uh, the this giant sky dragon ship is. And then they see everyone bowing down, and they hide. And Quartermain says, don't let them see you. And as all of them, all the workers avert their gaze and bow, the you know, an august personage is brought through on a carriage. Uh, obviously, shout out to Fu Manchu, but like I said, you know, it could be Yellow Claw from the 40, you know, Silver from Golden Age comics or, you know, any you know, evil... M- Chinaman stereotype, but I do think it's supposed to be uh, Fu Manchu because I remember correctly, and I haven't read any of the Fu Manchu books, but in one of the films, I remember he had a base in Limehouse, and uh, so we uh, we find Murray and Quartermain being found by one of the guards. He tries to get his elephant gun out, but the guy's too quick for him, and just as they think they're going to be, uh, the alarm's going to go off, they're going to be killed. Uh, a sword comes out of nowhere and takes the guy's head off, and it's Griffin, the Invisible Man. How are you both? <laughs> you know, just very nonchalant, like killing this guy for, uh, you know, just for fun, pretty much. And he's like, Griffin, you're here? Of course. I was here before you. I watched you wobble your way down that scaffolding. There's another stairway at the rear, you know. That's what I used. I, I, I kind of like the way Griffin is just kind of flippant. You know, you just kill the guy with a machete and, oh, yeah, well, I saw you guys coming down, blah, 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 blah. And he says that perhaps uh, you could make a diversion for us, and then Griffin's already gone. Then, uh, Griffin comes out and meets Hyde or um, Jekyll, who's standing out front as uh, you know, as a lookout, as the diversion. And he's saying, uh, "Well, I don't know if I could just, uh, you know, it depends on my emotions. I, what if I can't get into the mood? He goes, be quiet, just do your bit." He goes in. He says, "I demand to see the manager." And then uh, they start to rough him up and take your hands off me. And then, sure enough, he gets mad and he becomes Hyde and he starts literally like biting the arms off or ripping, you know, the arms out of the sockets of these guys and start eating them. <laughs> and he says, and next time, if I want to say I want to see the manager, then bring me the manager. <laughs> it reminded you of the Hulk. And, I, you know, obviously this came prior, but it reminds me a lot of, like, Ultimate Hulk, you know, where he's actually eating people and, you know, ripping people in half and, and stuff like that as opposed to the other Hulk that just, you know, when Hulk smash and, and tore stuff up. But but the the ultimate version of the Hulk is very much like this incarnation of, of uh, Mr. Hyde. Well, yeah, you won't like me when I get angry. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Plus, there are, the, there's a similarity in that there are, there are two distinct personalities, and they both hate each other. I mean, as he as yeah. he's done with the guys, he's Jekyll. Is that you? Of course, it's not you, cretinous freak. I'm Edward Hyde. I'm a pleasure to make mm-hmm. your acquaintance, Mister Griffin. You know, as if he hadn't met him before, it's Henry Jekyll. So they're, you know, they're two distinct personalities that are yeah. you know at war with one another again, just like the Hulk. And then the coolest thing that I don't think I've ever represented it from Hyde, but if you think about it, I mean, he's you know everything is enhanced. Enhanced muscles, you know, enhanced smell, enhanced. You know, I'm sitting, you know, hearing and everything else. And it's cool because he can see, like, infrared. So he sees Griffin, but doesn't lead on that he could see him. I thought that was just a really cool touch for that character to, you know, that he basically, it, it's not just, that more than just his physique was enhanced. Right. And we see that in, the, in this part where he looks and he can see, you know, the thermal outline of Griffin. Even though he tells him he yeah. can't, we see it from Hyde's point of view that actually he can. You can see the heat that Griffin's body is putting off. I do love this line coming up, though. He's like, we'll have to be quick if we're to rescue Murray and Quartermain. Hyde replies, Murray and Quartermain, yes, I remember them from Paris. They shot me, poisoned me, and abducted me. I don't think there's any great hurry, is there? (laughs) It's just a nice line. The Limehouse building is on fire as as Griffin and Hyde sneak into the tunnel. And all the workers and the the guards are uh, alerted to the fire and... uh, running away gives Murray and Quartermain a chance to sneak in and sure enough Quartermain sneaks into the inner sanctum and finds what must be the Calvarite it's a small chunk of uh, of mineral that Calvar created and there's a giant uh, machine built all around it to harness its power to power the um, the airship I love the design work by O'Neill here with that dragon's head and all it's, the spikes coming out yeah, it's like that Victorian steampunk thing again, but then with the Chinese aesthetic, with the dragon, exactly, yeah. with the dragon head and, and uh, you know, everything else. It's just, um, super again, super cool work by O'Neill here. Uh, Quartermain goes in, gets the Cavrite, heads out, and then uh, gets back with Murray. They find their way out. They said, uh, I like the line that Quartermain says, oh, maybe our path will be strewn with roses. Murray says, no. I feel you're mistaken, sir, although the coloring is very similar. And there's this giant panel of Hyde having literally pulled to, pulled apart all these minions of Fu Manchu and eaten them. Like there's a hand hanging out of his mouth. Uh, <laughs> he can't even talk because he's got so much, he's, you know, his cannibalism is taking, uh, you know, control <laughs> more so than his speech. That head just goes blind black. It's just hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Then the guy punches him and he just clamps down on his face. <laughs> Murray orders Hyde in, and Hyde says, You dare to order Edward Hyde as if you were a dog. Murray replies, Dogs, sir, have more self-control. Now get in here. They find themselves in a room underneath. Above them, they have a giant glass ceiling. They have no way to get out. They look up. They see that um, if they break through the glass roof, they'll drown in the Thames. They realize that if they use the Cavorite, which is anti-gravity, that will help them float through the water, and then hopefully Hyde can survive the bends. So they destroy the, the glass and float up using the Cavorite. And they float above London, and they cannot shut the door on the little chamber that nullifies the Cavorite. So they're about 100 feet in the air before they finally are able to turn it off. And they, they splash into the Thames. They are taken out of the water by uh, the tentacles of the Nautilus and then brought back inside, having completed their mission. That was awesome. Oh, yeah, it's great. To see... The Nautilus design, I mean, obviously, you take, you know, taking its cue from the whole giant squid and sea creatures and all that kind of stuff, but to actually have those tentacles serve a purpose other than just decoration was, was really sweet. And 
you know, because you're, you're seeing it the whole time and you just assume it's just some, you know, a static or to scare away creatures or to, to frighten, you know, the surface dwellers or whatever. And to see that there's actual functionality with those was just really cool. We uh, find our group assembled again on the Nautilus, joined by Campion Bond, and they've turned over the Cavorite to him. And Bond says uh, his superior, Mr. M, will be delighted. And then uh, their payment is promised in the special bank account, and they'll be in touch until they're needed. And uh, Mina Murray calls him a supercilious little hog's pizzle, which uh, I, since we're a family podcast, I won't explain what that is, but if you want to Google it, it is pretty funny. They realize that Griffin is gone, that the wrapping, he left behind his, his wrapping and his robe, but he himself is gone. And uh, we find, we, we notice because uh, Campion hears something, that Griffin is following Campion Bond to find out where he's going, what he's doing, who he's going to have a right to. And, uh, Cam- and Campion's being followed, and they realize... He says he gives the cavalry to M, and M is not Mycroft Holmes. M is instead James Moriarty, who is Sherlock Holmes' nemesis, the, uh, the Lord of the Underworld Crime Syndicate in the Sherlock Holmes stories, and the super genius with whom Holmes uh, matches wits on several occasions, and who ultimately causes Holmes' uh, demise, which we see at the beginning of Chapter 5, some deep organizing power. We see uh, the Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland about ten years previous, or eight years previous to uh, what's going on in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And there's Moriarty and Holmes. Now, in the Holmes books, uh, it's, it's generally um, known that John, uh, Sherlock Holmes dies fighting uh, Moriarty, that they both die falling from the falls fighting each other uh, from Reichenbach Falls. But we see in this version that things are a little different than they were in the book. In this version, Holmes indeed perishes because he's killed <laughs> and uh moriarty survives and it turns out the campion bond is the, the the is working for moriarty they send uh moran one of their men to uh which might be a shout out to miracle man because the, the name of the character there is michael moran i'm not sure uh or marvel man i guess is known now but uh it's moriarty finds it ironic that holmes thinks he's an enemy of the state and that holmes never realized that the state should create his own enemy, thus keeping you know him in business or what have you. And uh, he refers to it as shadow boxing bond. We're all just shadow boxing, right? Well, Moriarty and and Holmes locked wits on several uh, occasions in the in the Holmes stories, and they right. s- supposedly in the Conan Doyle version, they both die in the falls fighting one another. Uh, in this version, we find out the truth though that Moriarty is in charge of the MI5 of this period, and that basically he did all these things as a crime underworld to keep himself in business, pretty much, that to justify his own existence as as you know counter counter espionage, that he had to actually become a crime lord to create something for his group to fight, to, to again to justify his own existence. Definitely uh, a Lex Luthor vibe from Moriarty. Totally. With the green, with the, with the green Cavorite especially, I might as well, it might as well have just been uh, Kryptonite. You know what I mean? Pretty cool. Uh, uh, what happens to him later on throughout Volume 2 and Volume in, in Black Dossier as well. But I, I really liked it. I mean, probably one of the traditional literary rivalries as far as hero versus villain. I mean, you could go back and do, you know, the prisoner and Zaroff from The Most Dangerous Game. Uh, you know, uh, Rainsford and all that stuff, but uh, Moriarty versus uh, Holmes and uh, vis-a-vis uh, Watson also, a pretty classic matchup. And I was really giddy. I mean, my grandfather used to read, you know, like The Crooked Man and a, and a whole bunch of other Holmes adventures and stuff to me when I was a, when I was a kid, you know, in, in elementary school and stuff. And I just I just got really jazzed with his inclusion of that in, 
in here, and especially uh, the flashback to Reichenbach, because they can remember how many, it's, it's almost like Doctor Who, you know what I mean? How many times has Sherlock Holmes been produced, and how many times have they done those? I mean, that, that's, you know, right up there with Agatha Christie's director Perot, if not Dupin himself, um, as far as, you know, the amount of times that the BBC has put out series or likewise uh, done remakes of those you know, specific mystery stories, too. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, he's the Napoleon of crime, and it's only fitting that, you know, we obviously see a bust of Napoleon, you know, in his lair. Yeah, I like the Moriarty being flip sides of the same coin, too, kind of taps into whether we should trust our government or not, and kind of speaks back to uh, Russ's point about Griffin, that reach heading into the 20th century, there was this decaying of the moral virtues of Victorian England coming about, and it kind of adds another level to the story again, like Moore does so well. Good point, man. Um, it, it again, it makes total sense that that uh, Moriarty would be central to the story, considering what a big place you know the Sherlock Holmes stories have in Victorian literature. We find out that Moriarty rules the West End, and that the Fu Manchu character ruled the East. And the Calvarite offered him the power to eliminate him, so Fu Manchu stole it. He wanted to use it against him by taking out the West End. Now he's destroyed, he has the Calvarite back, and then he's going to he's going to strike with his own airship, powered by Calvarite. And uh, it's it's interesting that they assumed it was Mycroft Holmes, and instead it's you know Holmes it's Holmes's younger you know, Mycroft's uh, younger brother's you know nemesis. So Griffin has seen all this. He sneaks by the the Bobby at the uh, front of the building and then he could have easily gotten past the policeman but instead he kills him with a shovel very brutally takes his clothes and walks home and wearing the uh, policeman's clothes with no face or uh, <laughs> hands or anything and uh, people kind of notice but not really this invisible Bobby winking his way back to the British Museum that scene where uh, Griffin takes out the Bobby too reminds me of the uh Attempted rape scene from Watchmen. Just it seems like Moore writes these brutally violent scenes that are not like any other comic book violence you see. Oh, totally. It's, it's brutal violence. Yeah. It's I mean, his violence has consequences. You know, if you hit someone with a shovel in in Superman action comics or whatever, they you know, they exclaim "oh" and maybe fall down. Here, I mean, obviously, you know, he literally beats him to a bloody pulp. He rips him. Yeah. And pops a hole in his head and his. You know, I mean, you can even see his, you know, the, you know, inside his skull. So yeah, very, very, very brutal. The two, uh, the rest of the group is, uh, is back waiting. Uh, Nemo is the one who sent Griffin, even though Griffin is insane because he doesn't trust Bond with the Cavorite. So he sent Griffin, the Invisible Man, to spy on him. And uh, Cormier didn't know about it ahead of time, but he agrees with Nemo because he's, he doesn't quite trust Bond either. And they go up on deck leaving uh, Mina and uh, Jekyll alone in the Nautilus. And then uh, Mina talks about how frustrated she is with Quartermain, and Jekyll actually says that he's probably he's very smitten with you. Next we go to uh, Quartermain and uh, Nemo on the deck, the outside deck of the Nautilus. They talk about Miss Murray. Nemo talks about, his, <laughs> about how he feels about Western women. They all disobey their men and dress like prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, he kind of talks about what, uh, he kind of makes an allusion to the scandal, uh, the Dracula novel and what happened to her. And he still has no idea why they, the authorities chose her 
to assemble the group. They have no clue why, you know, what she is. They see Griffin come back in the Bobby's uniform. He tips his hat to them. They exclaim, oh, God. <laughs> and Nemo tries uh, quickly to get him in before anyone sees him. It just kind of shows, you know, the, the, the moral bankruptcy of Griffin. He doesn't care if he's caught. He doesn't right. care. You know, he just killed a guy in cold blood, took his clothes, and then walked, you know, as, as proud as you please, invisible down the street. He just, again, amoral. He just doesn't care. In the reverse, like a nudist. You know, you would, it, you'd almost see him like if somebody were to strip their clothes off and just strut down the street with their arms, elbows out and all that, proud of themselves. He's the opposite because nobody can see him. So for this, he actually put clothes on so he could just kind of, you know, and of course a policeman's uniform, so he would draw attention to himself and just strut down the street for all the world to look at him with, you know, with no, you know, in this case the shock of it is the fact that he has no hands and no head that's visible. So I just, it just made me laugh. I also like Griffin's, uh, oh heavens, he's harmed a poor policeman. I'm, I'm sorry, I thought we were a covert military unit. Instead, we were a knitting circle. <laughs> <laughs> Quartermain asks him, did you learn anything, or did you just go on a murder spree? And he explains that Minecraft Holmes is not uh, the superior to Bond, uh, as Mina had surmised, but instead it's uh, Moriarty. And uh, they continue that uh, he's going to be not only the head of intelligence, but also the West End criminal mastermind, and that he was going to make a, he's made a, war, a weapon in his war against the Chinamen. And the Lunar Expedition were, uh, was just a cover story. It was a lie that he already has a war chariot made to be powered by uh, the Calvarite. And Nemo knows of Moriarty, always so known as the Napoleon of Crime, and he, he's afraid that he plans to bomb the East End. Mina realizes that it's Moriarty. She thought he was dead, much like Snake Plissken. And uh, Nemo <laughs> says that uh, I guess only only Sherlock Holmes met his end at Reichenbach Falls. Moriarty survived, but Limehouse may not. So they're going to use... They, find, they finally realize he's going to use Calvary in his own warship, his own airship. They uh, You see Campion Bond handing him over the Calvary and shaking his hand as he climbs onto a ship that has been un, you know, unshown so far. Um, Mina and Quartermain run, try to, uh, to get to better see in the amusements. And we see, again, a big silhouette of the airship, uh, Moriarty's airship, that is uh, being launched by a, a lot of sailors. This is also, again, a shout-out to Jules Verne's Master of the World, in which uh, a character named Robur, which they mentioned earlier in the story, uh, took an airship and, and basically bombed London uh, for ransom. It was a very, um, very you know, interesting story and kind of uh, ties into the same plot that Moriarty is, is doing onto London as well. So Nemo realizes that he has something stashed away that might be of help. He breaks into his uh, closet and finds something and starts to pull it out with Jekyll. Then we see a, this great half-page uh, drawing of O'Neill's of just the crowds in the street looking up at something. Even the blind man. Even the blind man is looking up at it, exactly. <laughs> and the faces are, are just you know, stunned. One guy, his cigarette has fallen from his lip. One woman has a hand over her mouth. She can't believe what she's seeing. But they're all looking up in horror. We don't see what at yet, though. And then um, they realize that they're not going to make it to Battersea. There's a huge delay. Everyone has stopped in the street to look up at Moriarty's giant airship. And we see this huge airship with, like, a, I guess it's a bat, almost, uh, motif, uh, being powered by uh, the Cavorite. And thus ends uh, Chapter 5. Our next scene is Moriarty on the deck of the airship, singing, uh, reciting Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, talking about how much he loves the Cavorite and how much he loves this godlike perspective, how it feels 
it almost feels natural to him from the way he describes it. You know, the Thames, a marvelous pivotal stream of silver beneath the August moon. And then uh, he gives the order to commence the pyro-explosive bombardment of uh, Limehouse in the East End. And thus starts uh, the final chapter, The Day of Be With Us, Chapter 6. The, uh, the bombardment starts, and, and Murray and Quartermain realize that they need to get back to the Nautilus. There's no way they're going to be able to catch the airship now that it's in the air and, and starting to be starting on its uh, destructive path. In the meantime, Nemo has found, it's gotten out what was in the closet, and it's an air balloon, a hot air balloon, named Victoria, oddly enough. They're going to get on board and try to board the airship from their hot air balloon. Next, we see a uh, Fu Manchu watching the bombardment, ordering his war kites and cannons in defense. And the double-page spread of the war kites and airships is phenomenal. We see tons of uh, his warriors with a giant uh, dragon and fish and different, uh, even one shaped like a, a purple squid, uh, kites flying from the rooftops of Limehouse to try to attack the airship. That's brilliant, brilliant panel. It's really beautiful. We see the destruction in the foreground and, the, uh, again, all these fish and dragon-shaped kites flying into the sky, plus uh, war cannons that he happens to have in Limehouse uh, firing and an aerial cannon firing at the, um, the airship. The coloring on that page, too, is really good. I mean, you've got all the bright kites, but if you look at the, the buildings, how the light and the, the oranges fades as it gets away from the fire. Right. I didn't notice mm. that, but you're absolutely correct. Yeah, the, the, I mean, there's all the bright colors, but they're kind of muted. But as you get closer to the fire, you see them brighter because of the natural light. That's a good good catch. We see our, inba- our intrepid band of, of adventurers in this hot air balloon uh, trying to float uh, toward the airship. Uh, he's passing out harpoon guns and, and weapons. And Jekyll is, uh, I don't think Edward will require a firearm, but it's, he's too big to need one, at least these days. They approach the warship, and uh, Nemo gives him, uh, gives uh, Quartermain some instructions on how to fire the harpoons, and they throw a grapple into the rigging and are able to get aboard Moriarty's airship. Meanwhile, uh, they're they're totally unnoticed on the gondola because the uh, the forces of Fu Manchu are fighting the forces of Moriarty in a very, very bloodthirsty battle as they try to board the airship to bring it down from their war kites. They're too busy to notice, and Mina starts slapping Jekyll again to turn it into hide <laughs> so they can get the Calvarite and get the heck out of there. And we get another great panel of Hyde, you know, grabbing Mina by the hand. I told you to stop it. <laughs> I mean, it's like, Mr. Hyde, you are hurting my hand, sir, and I will not allow that. I should be grateful if you would release me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. that, He does. That page above where the big fight with the the kite men and everything else, you got one guy's eye getting popped out, and another guy's got a cheek taking his ear off. (laughs) It's just pretty gruesome. Oh, yeah, you see a couple heads falling toward the ground there. Yeah, yeah. But you look at these guys in green, especially with the type of the hat they have, it reminds me a lot of, like, you know, an AIM uh, Hydra, you know, Marvel. <laughs> yeah, Hydra AIM uh, kind of get up going on, especially with that start green and, the, you know, the squared off tops of the, of the, of the hat. So just, it just made me think of that. You know, that's totally true because, I mean, if you think about it, they're using, you know, advanced technology like Hydra would to, you know, destroy the world, and they're pretty much out on the same mission, so... Right. So that's a good catch, but yeah, definitely. Right. I get that. I get what you're saying there. Yeah, Hail Hydra. <laughs> we see what else it. I love that on that same page too. Mm-hmm. If you watch uh, the cigarette in Griffin's mouth, 
when it gets down to that bottom panel and Jekyll's turn to hide. Oh, by the way, the cigarette's hanging. Yeah, his jaw is dropping, too. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, I didn't notice that. And then you see the smoke ring in the final panel there, above uh, Gorgamine okay. and Nemo's head. Pretty sweet. I never noticed that. They uh, they make their way inside. They follow the giant green glow, and sure enough, uh, there's a giant battle royale going on inside the engine room where the Cavorite is. They send Hyde in there, and they send Nemo in there. Nemo has a machine gun. And Nemo is really, yeah, he's really getting into it, too. Come forward. Come forward, men of England. Tell the gods that Nemo <laughs> sent you. You know? He's really enjoying it. And uh, Hyde is like, leave these scuttling little blood bags to me and the darkie. <laughs> so Mina, I mean, there's a bunch of ungodly mayhem going on. He's tearing, they're tearing into the men from both sides. Doesn't matter really. Nemo and Hyde and uh, Murray and Quartermain move on to get the Cavorite. They get to the top deck and they, they run into Moriarty. Mina faces Moriarty. Moriarty says, ah, oh, a woman. How amusing. And you are. And then uh, she tries to talk to him, and Moriarty says, throw the smelly little lesbian over the side. <laughs> Quartermain pushes Mina out of the way, pushes her down, uh, pulls out a machine pistol, and makes short work of all the guards. Uh, Moriarty uses one of the guards' human shield and shoots Quartermain in the arm, uh, so making it cause him to drop the machine pistol. And then uh, Moriarty mentions, oh, you know, my late adversary spoke of you occasionally. He thought you were a weakling. And he's about to... Um, Shoot Quartermain through the head when Murray grabs a wrench and literally puts a wrench to the works. Smashes the uh, containment field for the Cavorite. Moriarty is so obsessed with the Cavorite, he grabs it, not thinking that he will, he too will float with the Cavorite because it is essentially anti-gravity. And he floats up into the sky. And then they realize, uh, if the Cavorite's gone, what's keeping the airship in the air? And uh, they realize... Nothing. Yeah. Pretty much nothing, so <laughs> they decide to make their way back to the balloon as quickly as possible. Um, they all make it, except for Hyde, who's too heavy for them. Uh, he's having trouble. They're having trouble keeping the balloon in the air because Hyde is so heavy and they're sinking, he's sinking them. The balloon crashes. They're saved by the Nautilus once again. And then we get the little denouement here at the end after all the um, explosions and the airship has crashed and what have you. And, this, and because of Moriarty's death... Mycroft Holmes does become the head of British intelligence, uh, who is, that's who they thought he was, uh, and was to begin with. See that statue in the background of that page? There's a bust of Baron Munchausen. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, that's pretty cool. That is. And also the uh, the air balloon that they used <laughs> for the airship, uh, Victoria. Yeah. Is there in the yeah. background. Pretty sweet. Mycroft offers them, asked them if they would uh, remain there at England's call for a significant retainer. And they said, uh, what's become of Mr. Bond? And Mycroft Holmes says, nothing. It's often useful to have employees one knows to be treacherous. <laughs> and then Mycroft leaves, leaves them alone. And then the, uh, the final line of the book is, uh, he's paying us an awful lot of money to sit around doing nothing. And Mina Murray replies, we'll see. These are tumultuous times, Mr. Quartermain. I'm sure something will turn up. And we see... In the sky, something is coming down from above, which will lead right into Volume 2. And thus ends uh, Volume 1 of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I just want to mention in the, uh, in the trade paperback, we have uh, a Alan Quartermain story written by Alan Moore called Alan and the Sundered Veil, which is kind of, it's a prose piece, and it's kind of a mixture of the Alan Quartermain story, of a, a typical Alan Quartermain story with a Lovecraftian story, which is very interesting. If you're into either of those things, I definitely recommend the prose piece. Gentlemen, closing thoughts? 
summing up thoughts? I, uh, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. I mean, I, I didn't think I would not enjoy it, but I, but I really was into it a lot more. And I think, you know, it's caused me to look into, you know, more of the literary, you know, characters that are in here, um, and do, you know, kind of do my homework on it. I also liked, I mean, just the production of the book, the way it's put together, the covers, were just really neat and very, you know, they varied up the style on them, and it kind of had a lot of these, almost like breaking the fourth wall quotes here and there. I love how on each issue they show, you know, you kind of get the opening credit page, and they vary that up with these, you know, kind of, you know, cute little um, ways to describe writers and and artists and and things like that. So I thought I thought I, I just thought presentation wise, you know, it was very well done. I mean, just like we saw with Watchmen, you know, more obviously puts a lot of thought and a lot of um, care into how the material, you know, not just the material, but how the material is, pre- is presented. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. The other thing I thought was, was really neat and is the ha- the way the, kind of the handle Captain Nemo. I liked how he was just kind of like this, almost like a background character for the first few issues. Um, you kind of got the sense that he was really, really smart and really sharp and um, had all these cool gadgets and toys. And it was almost like he was just kind of biding his time. And then when we get to issue five, we really see how smart he is and a little bit of that animosity that, you know, that whole British imperialism or how much, you know, that's really affected him and kind of sits at the back of his brain. And, you know, at the end of the book where he just kind of turns it, where he he has the upper hand and he, you know, is able to kind of put all the, the little pieces together in the end and finally figured out that it was Moriarty and this is what his plan was and everything else. I thought that was pretty cool. And then, of course, all the, the ads between the issues, all these um, crazy um, Victorian-area, you know, magazine advertisements for all these uh, crazy devices and methods and books and potions, stuff like that. I thought some of them were really funny. Yeah, that was like reading the back of Boy's Life, or even some of the old DC and Marvel comics in the in the uh, early Bronze Age, too, with, like, you know, the X-ray specs and stuff like that that you could order. I really felt that it, it really brought home the whole comic book ness of, of of League of Extraordinary. I, I enjoyed this as an ongoing. I really enjoyed this as a trade, but you know what? I'm, this is just kind of a weird thing. Like League of Extraordinary, like Superman, Batman from last week, this is something that sometimes is on my shelf and sometimes isn't on my shelf. Just this, I, I don't really have like a set kind of uh, real, real strong decision or, you know, one real strong feeling one way or the other League of Extraordinary. I mean, if I see it for half off, I'll pick it up, and then inevitably I'll be like, all right, well, what do I need to pitch? You know what I mean? Or toss up on eBay. And, you know, it, it goes sometimes, but it also comes back. And, um, you know what, I think it's going to stick around for a good long while this time because I, I really just felt, you know, it was it was a real good affirmation of the genre. It was certainly a mixture of everything. I just liked the fact that there were a bunch of, you know, prissy, prim, and proper uh, dudes who were just brawling around in uh, you know suits and, and waistcoats and, and whatnot. I thought that was just a really cool concept. And you know what? This was just about enough of Alan Moore being Alan Moore, uh, you know, for me to kind of like indulge process, you know, in a couple sittings as as far as the reading goes. And I like I I just think that like you know if if you were to you know compare this to like food, like he measured everything out perfectly. I, I don't think it was too much. I don't think it was too little. I think it was just right. So that's my bowl of porridge. Yeah, I remember when this first was solicited, and I didn't know what to think of Kevin O'Neill's art. I'd never really seen it before. Uh, my expectations weren't that high, but I can't imagine any other artist 
for this book. I mean, he's got a level of detail and design that is perfect for this world building, but he's cartoony enough that the expressions he gets on the faces and stuff and the body language of the characters, it just works perfectly, I think. And Yeah, I liked all the, the production and the presentation of the original issues, too, with those ads and everything. It just... It was really good, really well put together. I totally agree. I, 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 after reading it, I really couldn't picture another artist doing this, uh, other than Kevin O'Neill, and I'm kind of glad Alan Moore, you know, is keeping uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen exclusive to him because it just kind of makes it more, you know, set in that world to me. It makes it more consistent, as it were. Um, what I really loved about this, not only was the fact I was able to use a bunch of useless knowledge I hadn't thought of since college, but uh, also the fact that everything is kind of tied together. Um, we see this with the world building. Uh, we, we went to mention Watchmen early on. Uh, planetary. Even if you look at um, Jeff Johns and the way he's setting up everything in Superman uh, Secret Origin right now, you know we we see someone who is is crafting a story over a long haul, and we see these elements coming together neatly, you know, dovetailing one into the other, and everything working together to create this you know this universe that's unto itself. And I, I think it's really like it's one of Moore's more successful attempts at that, you know, more cohesive, uh, definitely. Uh, and the only thing I really want to say in regards to the movie uh, that was made from this, don't. That's all I'm going to say. It's the worst thing James Robinson ever did. So if uh, we, I think that about wraps it up, gentlemen, for uh, our look at Volume 1 of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, next week, I believe, is Old Man Logan. Is that right, Russ? It is. Oh, it I is. love finally, that story. That'll be great. Yes, and we're finally able to do it now that they've finished the story. Um it was quite late, but well worth the wait. And that'll be just a good, fun, summer popcorn movie in the fall type of thing that we'll be going over. So I'm looking forward to it big time. Yeah, it was probably my favorite uh, like future Marvel dystopian story since uh, Peter David and George Perez did that Hulk future imperfect. But I'll, I guess we'll talk about that in the next episode. And then in two weeks, we'll be uh, joined by uh, Ed Pisker of uh, American Splendor and uh, WYSIWYG fame to discuss uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Volume 2. Yeah, I, 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 I'm looking forward to it. It'll be great. He's a, he's a great guy. And uh, Chris, thank you so much for being our special guest tonight and, and joining us in the uh, discussion. It's good to have you on, man. Thanks a lot for being you know, a really uh, huge uh, contributor to the forums. And, uh, your, the yeah, website. we really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, totally. I love reading your posts, man. They're awesome. You're really well thought yeah, out. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's our pleasure. Uh, the website awesome. is Warrior27. Is that right? Warrior27.com. Yes, yep. want to check out his anthology uh, that he's work, working on with his collaborator. And uh, I'd like to thank all the dudes, Russ and Adam, for uh, showing up and uh, talking some Alan Moore with me. And uh, I guess we'll see you guys next week. Join us on the forums at thecomicforums.com under the Half Hour Wasted Legion of Dudes forums. Uh, comment at comments at legionofdudes.com. You can follow us on Twitter on LOD by following LOD Tweet. Or you can... Uh, just basically, you know, if you shout, if you see Adam at uh, Baltimore Comic Con, give him a shout out, say hi, you know. <laughs> I'll be in line at four thirty in the morning. Right. So him, him and uh, Pants yeah. will be in line at four thirty in the morning for sketches. So. Yeah, I actually was on the phone with Pants this afternoon. We're already we're already plotting and scheming. We already have the convention map and everything. So <laughs> we're it's it's uh, just like old times, I guess. <laughs> and so, you can uh, don't yeah. forget. Oh, go ahead, Russ. Don't forget to leave us a voicemail at five one six. Four six eight seven nine one two. 
Thank you so much for that. And uh, you can check out Adam's coverage of the Baltimore Con on our extended edition feed. We have a lot of great stuff on there, so check us out. You can uh, subscribe to that feed on iTunes or just get it from the HHWLOD website. Uh, Thanks a lot, guys, and uh, we'll see you all next week for Old Man Logan. Good night. Good night.